0: reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once.
1: Uh, Good evening, my name is Andrew Russell. I'm the pastoral fellow here at Grace Downtown, Um, and it's my pleasure to bring before you the word. Let's pray as we get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in the mighty name of Jesus, and we ask, Father, that you would uh, send your spirit, that you would convict the one here first, that you would convict me first, Lord, and then you would convict your people second. Uh, Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name amen. So we've heard this story before, the triumphal entry. If you've been in church or if you've grown up in the church, uh, some of you might, for for some of you, this is your first time hearing the story of Jesus walking into Jerusalem and coming on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. And uh, they had the crowds waving the palm branches or branches. There's no specific type of branch, but they're waving branches and they put them at the feet of Jesus as he fulfills this Zechariah prophecy. And when it comes to scripture, a lot of times when we hear familiar stories, we can close our eyes and ears because we've seen it before. There's something about familiar places that we ignore them. It's hard for us to see a place that we live in every day as new. We discount places that we're in because They're familiar to us. And so many of you live here in D.C., you're from D.C., you've been here a while. And anytime you have a friend or family member come, what is the first thing they want to do? They want to see the museums. They want to visit the White House. They want to go to the monument or see the Washington Cathedral. And they want you to walk everywhere with them, right? And you're like, man, I've, I've been here before. I've seen this place before. And so there's something about familiar places that we're like, ah, I've seen that before. And so we discount them, we we forget them, we pass by as though they're not there. And we fail to see places that we're in and appreciate them. You see, the value of place is one of the values of grace downtown. We value place because we believe that you cannot love a people without loving the place of the people. And we get this idea from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, where the prophet says, seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you will have peace and welfare and prosperity. And so there's something about cities, there's something about places that God, in the, in the economy of God, where he says, I want you to invest your time, effort, money, energy, talents, skills, whatever you have, invest in a particular place because as you invest in these places, as you invest in the city, the Bible says that you will receive welfare and peace. So you cannot love a people, I say it again, until you love the place of the people and Jesus shows a love for the people by his love of a particular place. Jesus identified the people with the place and he started his ministry in Jerusalem and he came down to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It is a particular place. And like I said, you know, a lot of times we can read scripture and we can just, it's familiar to us, right? We read places, we read names, Mehibosheth or, you know, all these other, you know, these names and we're like, okay, I don't know what that is, but let me get to the good stuff. But as I was preparing for the sermon, I, I looked at the Mount of Olives, and I and I and I couldn't help but to notice: What is this place? What is this place that I, in my first reading, seemed to ignore? What is this place that I'm not seeing? And so, when I looked at this particular place, I saw that this place has some history. It has some deep history in the life of the Jewish people. And so, my two points as a two-point sermon is Jesus redeems a place, and he redeems a people. And I'm going to show from the, the, looking at Mount of Olives how Jesus redeems a particular place, and then we're going to see how Jesus redeems the people of this place. Now, anybody know what redeems mean? Anybody? Can you? Redeem. Jim, what does redeem mean? Amen. Amen. Hey, y'all give it up for Jim. Amen, amen. We have some students of the word in here, amen? So redeem, he's right. Redeem means to to buy back, to repossess, to reclaim, to rescue or deliver. And this idea of redemption is in the context of the Exodus. We know the Exodus story when God called Moses from Egypt to let his people out of Egypt, tell Pharaoh to let his people go as they walked out of Egypt. And so, they were in slavery, and the Bible says that God redeemed his people from slavery. God delivered them. He rescued them. He reclaimed them. He re them to himself. And that's what redemption is. So, when I say the word redeem, think about Jim's definition of redemption. Amen? So the Mount of Olives, he comes to a place. Jesus came to the Mount of Olives. Now, what is this place? First, in 2 Samuel 15, the Mount of Olives was a place where King David fled in terror because his son, Absalom, had conspired to take the throne away from his daddy. So Absalom, got he, 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 got some, uh, he, he basically got a quorum together. He, he got some folks who were on his side, and people were like, man, Absalom, you know, you're better than David. I think you should take the king's throne. And so, when David heard about this insurrection that was about to happen, King David took his men, and the Bible said that he fled to the Mount of Olives, weeping, and he was barefoot. And so, if you saw the Mount of Olives, if you remembered its history, it was the place where David wept. Secondly, the Mount of Olives is a place in 1 Kings chapter 11, where King Solomon, who was the son of David, King Solomon uh, worshiped other gods on the Mount of Olives. He, he worshiped foreign gods on the Mount of Olives. And I'll read it here from 1 Kings 11. It says, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. That's the Mount of Olives. And so he did for all his foreign wives, because remember Solomon had a th- a 700 wives, 300 concubines, who, and he made sacrifices to all of his wives' gods. And the Bible said he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, because God had spoken to Solomon in a vision and said, I want you to build me a temple. So Solomon was the one to build the first temple. He heard the voice of God, and yet he still worshiped. Foreign God. So the, the Mount of Olives was a mount of offense. And thirdly, and finally, as we look at the Mount of Olives, I want to show you that in Ezekiel chapter 10, the Mount of Olives was where the glory of the Lord departed from the temple and it went east and landed on the Mount of Olives. And so when you saw the Mount of Olives, it's like, man, that's the place when God left the church. And so the Mount of Olives has a very dark history. It has the history of King David weeping and running from his son. It has King Solomon worshiping foreign idols, a mount of offense. And thirdly, it was where the glory of the Lord departed. And Jesus Christ comes to this place, the Mount of Olives. He is Emmanuel, God with us, as it says in Matthew 1. He is the same God who was with Moses. He was the same God who was within the beginning. And he comes down, the glory returns in the form of a man named Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And he comes riding on a donkey into Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives. He doesn't say, yeah, this place is the hood or this place used to be good or this place used to be chocolate city. Or this place, yeah, is the swamp, like some people say. Or this place used to be the place where they had those riots and 8th Street is now being revitalized. He doesn't say all of that, but he comes bringing victory in the place of pain, in the place of shame, in the place where God's glory had departed. Jesus comes to this place riding on a donkey, bringing joy and triumph in this place. Isn't it interesting that you have to uh, apply direct pressure to a wound? Any, I'm not a doctor, I, you know, I'm not an MD, a, a PhD or whatever, but I know that if you have a deep wound, if you have a deep cut and it's you know, a lot of blood, that you have to apply pressure. You know, I've watched Saving Private Ryan, I've watched Hacksaw Ridge enough to know that when the brother's bleeding, you gotta put something around the wound. And apply direct pressure. So you have to apply direct pressure to a wound so that it stops bleeding, so that the arm doesn't get gangrene, so that the leg doesn't fall off. And so isn't it interesting that the place and source of hurt is the place of your healing? And Jesus applies direct pressure to the source of pain and and shame. He applies direct pressures to Israel's wound. He applies direct pressure to the place when they would pass by the Mount of Olives. They'd be like, oh yeah, that was that place God left the temple. Oh yeah, that was that place when Solomon worshipped foreign gods. Oh yeah, that was that place where David ran from his boy. And you see, we must apply direct pressure to the wounds of our lives with the word of God. And that's what exactly Jesus did. He walked. He's a a walking Bible. He knows the Old Testament forwards and backwards, so much so that when he comes to the Mount of Olives, he's entering in Jerusalem. This is Holy Week. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to rise again. And he says, I'm going to fulfill Zechariah 9 today. Nobody knows that he was going to do this. In fact, the disciples only saw that he fulfilled Zechariah 9 in John because after Jesus resurrected, then the disciples realized, oh, that's what Jesus was doing. So Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. He's walking in the authority of God, and nobody even sees it. And he demonstrates the fulfillment of the Zechariah 9 prophecy, which is, behold, the Bible says, your king is coming, bringing salvation and righteousness. Behold your king. Let's read it. It says here, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so, Jesus comes in fulfillment of the Zechariah 9 prophecy when the Jews were a subjugated people under Roman rule. He comes to a lowly people and he says, I'm going to bring you salvation in the place where it hurts the most. I'm going to bring you victory in the place where you are most weak. I'm going to bring you peace in the middle of your warfare. You see, many of us are trying to escape the past because it's painful. We're embarrassed by the past. It it hurts to be reminded of the pain where we came from. We're trying to pile on success to numb our past mistakes and failures. I mean, isn't this the reason why counselors talk about our past? If you've seen a counselor, the first thing they ask you is, tell me about your past. Tell me about your upbringing. Because in your past is the the healing in your present. So if you're going to get deliverance, if you're going to be redeemed in the present, you have to go back to your past and look at the dark places, the places that you're trying to hide, the places that you want to run from, the places that are full of shame, that are full of fear, that are full of just the ugliness of your past. And so the counselors say, let's look at your past to bring you present hope and future hope because the, greatest, because the place of our greatest plane will always be the place of our greatest healing. I'll say it again, the place of our greatest pain will always be the place of our greatest healing. And so if we want racial justice and economic justice and political justice, then we must apply direct pressure to the injustices of our past. We must look at slavery and racism and mass incarceration and institutional and individual biases. We must look at our political superiority These are the places where we will heal the most as a nation, as a community, as a society when we look at our ugly past and apply direct pressure because only then can we receive healing. Future hope is dependent upon past forgiveness and future grace is dependent upon past repentance. Now, Jesus, they they say that he's the son of David. And he fulfills the, the, the prophecy that there is one who will come from the root of Jesse, one who will be from uh, the, the, the son of David, who will reign eternally on the throne, that the Messiah would come from David's line, and, D, and Jesus is the greater David. There is, there is this pattern in Scripture where you have Moses being the greatest prophet and Jesus being the greater Moses. You have King David being the greatest king and Jesus being the greater David. And so when it comes to the story of David, we've seen this before in terms of the king's return to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, remember I said, remember when David ran from his son, Absalom, as he was running up to the Mount of Olives, there was a brother named Shimei, And Shimei was of the household of King Saul. And if you know your Bible history, King Saul was the first king, and David came after him, and Saul and David did not get along. And so, as David is going up, he's running from his son, uh, this insurrection that's mounting up, and Shimei is hurling cuss words. He's throwing rocks, and he is trying to beat David when he's down. And all of David's boys are like, Man, David, are you going to let him just say this? And David says, Just let him be. And David goes and he weeps. And then he hears of Absalom dying, and he comes to return to Jerusalem. He comes to reclaim his throne. He wants to redeem back what was stolen. And as he's coming down from the Mount of Olives, the Bible says that he's riding on a donkey and, he, and before he comes to Jerusalem, he sees Shimei, the same guy that hurled th- uh, rocks and cussed at him. And instead of saying, oh man, I'm gonna get you back. And so you were the guy, oh, you were the one. Now, now that I have my status back, now that I have my throne back, I'm gonna make you pay for what you've done. Instead of taking vengeance on Shimei, King David pardons him, and he has mercy on him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. When he he comes to the Mount of Olives, when he comes to a people, remember they are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are the same people who are going to say, crucify him. Jesus comes as the king of the Jews, and yet when, uh, when, when Jesus goes to trial, Pilate would, would put on the cross, the top of it, King of the Jews is a mockery. And so Jesus doesn't come into Jerusalem saying, man, you know, these people, man, these people, I should, I should, I, you know, they're praising me now, but I know they're not going to praise me, you know, in a, week's, in a week's time. He doesn't come with anger. He doesn't come with vengeance. He doesn't come with a sense of, man, I'm going to repay these people for what they're about to do but he comes just like David did to Shimei. He comes with mercy. He comes with peace. And so Jesus redeems a place. He he, he redefines the narrative of this place. No longer is the Mount of Olives the place of shame and offense and, and, and where the glory departed, but it is the place where Jesus walked triumphantly into Jerusalem. So much so that even now we're talking about Mount of Olives with a smile on our face and with with a little bit of, you know, our chest is pumped up because we think about Jesus coming in in triumph. Now, my second point, Jesus redeems the people. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, and he establishes, Matthew establishes Jesus as the descendant of David in Matthew 1, he says, Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And he brings salvation, he brings victory, and he brings good news. And you would think this is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us in flesh, right? And he's coming riding on a donkey. I mean, come on, a donkey? a donkey. I mean, can you think about that? He He's riding on a donkey. He's riding on a second-rate transportation service. He could have been on a horse. He could have been on a chariot. But yet he comes on a donkey. He comes in humility. He comes so close to the people that they can touch him. He comes so close to the people that they can hear his words. They can actually see Jesus among them. You know, this is the nature of Jesus' messiahship. He doesn't Wait for us to come to him, but he comes to us. He comes unannounced. He comes when he wants to come, and so Jesus comes at this time riding on a donkey, so approachable, and he doesn't wait for them. He doesn't schedule. You know, if we had to see, uh, you know, President Trump or one of the elected officials, we'd have to, we'd have, to have an appointment. If you, even if you had to see a high-ranking official, you have to make an appointment. And Jesus doesn't say, you know, on April the 9th, I'm gonna come down on Jerusalem and I want, you know, about 500 people and so get some of them branches. We're gonna set it up April the 9th. We're gonna call it Palm Sunday. And uh, so, you know, Peter, you know, make it happen. No, Jesus, Jesus comes with no warning. He comes like a friend. You you, You know those friends, those friends that text you and says, I'm on the way, I'm coming. You know those type of friends, right? That type of friend where you don't have to schedule and say, hey, let's meet next month or next next week, you know, next couple of days, but they just come. And that's what Jesus does. He comes like a friend. He comes unannounced and he comes humble. You know, many times we confuse humility for weakness. We're like, yeah, I don't want to be humble. Humble is for weak people. Humble is for people who don't have any strength. Humble, humble is for weak-minded people. You know, you you have to show force, you have to show that you have skill, you have to show that you belong to this particular place. And yet Jesus comes in humility and he redefines humility, thank you, as the character of the divine. God dwelling with men, kings dwelling with the poor, rulers and authority figures dwelling with prisoners and convicts. It is the ultimate expression of power it is the ability of the strong to give joy to the weak. The books of the law, the words of God to Moses and to the people of God describes God's rule over his people and God establishes his rule when his people were at their weakest. Submission to God's law resulted in strength, power and dignity. Mother Teresa, we all know Mother Teresa. Raise your hand if you know Mother Teresa. All right, Mother Teresa, one of the most humble people on the face of this earth. She said, humility is the mother of all virtues, purity, charity, and obedience. It is in being humble that our love becomes real, devoted, and ardent. If you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know that you know what you are. If you are blamed, you will not be discouraged. If they call you a saint, you will not put yourself on a pedestal. You see, humility is what the strong do when they bow the knee, dwell with the weak, and ride on donkeys. And Jesus brings his his messiahship, he brings his rule in humility. And he has the crowd screaming out, Hosanna, which means God save us. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if we, and if we, uh, you know, if we look at our Bibles right before the triumphal entry, Jesus, chose, Jesus showed himself to two blind men. And if you, look at, if you look at the scripture in terms of Matthew, the whole book of Matthew, anytime you see son of David, blind people are always saying it. It is only the blind and the lame that recognize Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah, the one to come. And so right before Matthew 21, Jesus comes, as he's preparing to come to Jerusalem, two blind men say, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd, the disciples are like, ah, you you know, you all better be quiet. And they, they say it louder, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus comes to these two blind men and he heals them. Now tell me, how can blind people know that he's the son of David, if only because they can hear, only because they know the character of the person. You know, I've, I've watched some YouTube on how the blind, uh, you know, like there's, there's a question, do blind, what do blind people think of race? You know, how, can, a, if a blind, can a blind person tell they're with a white person, an Asian person, a black person, a Latino? And, they, and, they, and this blind person says, he doesn't see race, obviously, but but he senses the people, their love for him and how they make him feel. And that's how we should get to know one another, right? We should get to know people, not like Dr. Martin Luther King says, on the content of your character. And so Jesus chooses these two blind men. They're the, they're the ones, the Bible says, that after he healed them, they accompanied the disciples. They joined the crowd. And I believe that it was the two blind men that were the first ones to say, Hosanna to the Son of David because he was the one who healed me. So Jesus has two blind men as his campaign managers. He doesn't get the, you know, he, he could have gotten some, uh, you know, he could have gotten some skills, some experience. Uh, he, could, he, could have, he could have interviewed some folks and say, hey, you know, what's your experience in crowd, uh, you know, crowd rallying? You know, what's your uh, protest experience? No, Jesus says, I'm going to use two blind men, to be my campaign managers, to show forth my glory. And Jesus bring peace. He brings peace that is not the type of peace that the people uh, of Israel, of the people of the Jews thought. It was not political power, but it was peace with God himself. And you see, we need peace today. We need peace with God because our relationship with him is broken, and we don't recognize him as king. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a messenger of God. He is the message of God. He is the king of kings and the king of all creation. And so sin, we know this, it broke our relationship with God. And consequently, we no longer see God as king, but man as king and, or woman as king. And, and the reason the message of the kingdom, the reason... Uh, uh, for this is that we substitute the 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 creator for the for the creature we we say yes you know your kingdom is of a peace but man's kingdom is a kingdom of reason if i can't scientifically verify it or then it isn't real now, I'm not saying that Christianity is not rational because it is, but what I am saying is that reason can only get you as far as your faith will take you. I'll say it again. Reason can only get you as far as your faith will take you. Reason says Jesus is the king, and he's going to bring us political justice. He's going to overthrow Roman rule because we've been waiting for this day, but faith is two blind men saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And this is the picture of the gospel. It is Jesus walking the way of death and shame to give us life and humanity. Jesus went to the cross and he resurrected to the grave to give us our humanity back. My brothers and sisters, many of us today are wondering, who am I? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And Jesus reveals to us true dignity and true humanity. And this is how important it is. True humanity is so precious to God that it takes everlasting, infinite, divine power to bring us to our rightful position, which is laying palm branches at the feet of Jesus while he walks victoriously into our lives. To be truly human is to be the people of the palm branches. We have the privilege to declare to the world that the king has come and he has brought eternal peace, everlasting joy, and acceptance with God himself. But only if you would lay down your life as a palm branch, only then will he redeem you. That's why the, the, the writer says, Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king has come. And he's bringing salvation. He's bringing redemption. Behold your king. Look at your king. See him there. He's so close. He's even near. And he comes not in anger. He comes not in this amorphous, you know, this, 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 this thing that you can't see. But he comes as a person bringing humility and love and power. Jesus redeems a people before he redeems a place. And that's why in Isaiah 62, he says, you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land is married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. You see, Christ's redemption is not only of the Jews, but of all people. Christ wants to redeem not only the earth, but all creation. Christ wants to redeem the city and the people of the city. And the challenge today, friends, is this. Will you lay down your life as a palm branch at the foot of Jesus? And will you say like the two blind men, son of David, have mercy on us? Because salvation is not just an intellectual thing. Salvation is something that two blind people can understand. Salvation is so real that you can touch it, that you can taste it. The psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so that is the victory that Jesus brings. He he brings God himself to us so that we can have peace, so that we can have victory in the places of shame, in the places of brokenness. God wants to redeem broken people and broken cities so that we can all wave our palm branches like the kids, not like little kids being cute, but like true humans waving our our, our palm branches, our lives toward our creator saying, praise him because of the victory that he has won on my behalf. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the victory that you've won. We thank you, Father, that there is no weapon formed against us that will prosper. We thank you that you have brought us peace with God. Father, a lot of us need peace today. And so, Father, I pray that you would, bring your peace, that you would show the hearers, your people today, that you are the king and that you want to redeem the broken areas of our lives, that you want to redeem our broken city. And Father, may we worship you and may we mean it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.